This is a Rooster Teeth production. Beneath the streets of Paris are tunnels upon tunnels filled and decorated with bones of six million bodies. Welcome to 30 Morbid Minutes. This is the podcast where we explore topics of a morbid, macabre, dark, and downright grisly nature. I'm Elise Willems. And I'm Jessica Vasami. In 1793, Philibert Asper, a doorman at Val de Grace Hospital in Paris, wandered into one of the hospital's courtyard's underground tunnels. Some accounts claim that Aspert was searching for a wine cellar, while others suggest he was trying to enter the basement of a nearby brewery. Whatever the case, Philibert found himself completely alone in the dark and vast tunnels that night. And these tunnels weren't just any tunnels. They were a stretch of the Paris catacombs, a complex and vast network of ossuaries, passageways, and chambers containing the bones and remains of millions and millions of people. And so... Philibert and his wanderings entered into this labyrinth of bones, carrying a single candle to light his way. And when that candle gave its last light, he became lost, enveloped in darkness. Unable to find his way back out, Philibert died in the catacombs. His body was eventually recovered in 1804, 11 years after his disappearance. And tragically, so close to an escape, just a few steps away from a staircase. Authorities and those who knew him were able to identify the former doorman by the buttons on his jacket and a key ring. I don't know if it's a tribute or just adding insult to injury, but Philibert's remains were buried in a small grave inside the catacombs. Today, it's a common meeting place for enthusiasts and visitors. And legend has it, if you're wandering the halls as the clock strikes midnight, the walls begin to speak and summon you further into the catacombs until you become lost and suffer the same fate as Philibert. Gosh, poor Philibert. He just, you know, he just wanted to get a little drink. I also right? love his name, Philibert. Philibert. <laughs> Philibert. <laughs> Philibert of the catacombs. Well, <laughs> Philibert, his story is one of many that warns of the perils of these Paris catacombs, one of history's most famous tombs, which have not been exempt from their own share of mysticism and urban legend. Today, we're taking a look at the Paris catacombs, their rich history and origins, and how contemporary enthusiasts and dark tourists have embraced this macabre landmark. But it's important to understand why the need for an underground network of ossuaries arose in the first place. Right. And suffice to say, there was a great need. The Paris catacombs were implemented to account for literally overflowing cemeteries in the late 18th century. As the city was encumbered by years of disease and overpopulation, the cemeteries of Paris were due for an alternative solution to this problem. Those living in the bustling market neighborhood of La Halle had the worst of it, dealing with the oldest and largest cemetery in Paris at the time. And that cemetery was Cemetière des Innocents. To say the cemetery was beyond capacity would be an absolute understatement. In English, known as Holy Innocence, the cemetery interred the bodies of approximately two million Parisians. And there were very real problems with having so many decomposing bodies in proximity to living conditions. For example, Sylvie Robin, who has worked as a curator for the catacombs and written books on the site, told AFP that the situation was so bad that, quote, 
Wine was turning bad and the milk was curdling. Oh, God. Nightmare. Uh, It's just like just by having decomposition, all of those chemicals and, you know, bacteria nearby, it was affecting the food product. Oh, gross. Uh, But back to the cemetery. Until the 1770s, 22 different Paris churches buried their dead here in Cemetery des Innocents. This cemetery was also the final resting place of many who died during the 1348 plague, those who drowned in the Seine River, and the unclaimed poor or homeless who lived and died in the streets. As it came to be, there was an extreme excess of death and bodies awaiting interment. Remember, we are about to enter the Victorian era in England, and the same problems that led to widespread and overwhelming death are also starting to beleaguer France. Due to the large numbers of bodies, undertakers and cemetery workers started to opt for burials in mass graves without coffins or anything actually separating the bones and the bodies. There's just so much death. They just have to do what they can to deal with the volume. And when those mass graves became too full, which they did, the bones were moved for storage into charnel houses, which are essentially just freestanding vaults like mausoleums. And note the language here, bones, not bodies. The bones were moved to make room for bodies. <laughs> it's like yeah. let the bodies hit the, bo- the floor, let the bones yeah. <laughs> hit yeah. the mausoleums. It's like there's so much going on here. Yeah. There were also bones stacked inside the actual walls of the cemetery as well. Yeah, which sounds really morbid, and I guess it is, but those cemetery walls were sort of like galleries um, that were built within them. They're called charniers, and they could house packed remains. Mm. As you can imagine, Holy Innocent Cemetery produced a putrid smell, and the locals were not happy about this, (laughs) obviously. And so this was a problem that was just starting to affect other cemeteries in the city, too. Like, something had to be done. And so in 1763, King Louis XV issued an order stating that no more burials would occur in the capital to combat this problem. But Louis still faced the might of the church, which pushed back against his edict. As such, graves were not to be moved or disturbed, and everything was left in a limbo state of structural compromise, falling apart, decay, for the next 15 or so years until... Well, a bunch of stuff just started getting worse. Walls started to collapse. The same ones that we just mentioned had a bunch of bones and remains packed into them, namely. And then there's the moisture problem because (laughs) during a particularly rainy spring season in 1780, one of these walls full on collapsed, spilling out bones and remains into neighboring properties. That little neighborhood, Lay Hall that we talked about, Mm. I would be losing my mind. I just love that. (laughs) Or or I'd be like free Halloween decorations. Yes. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) (laughs) And this was the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. By this time, King Louis XVI was in power and said, enough is enough. He launched a commission to investigate the Paris underground to figure out a solution. The tunnels that would come to house the catacombs were pre-existing, created as a result of the limestone quarries that were mined in the 13th century. And these tunnels were forgotten and prone to cave-ins, and clearly the perfect new resting place for the city's deceased population. Perfect but first, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but first, uh, they needed facelift, obviously, and some structural upgrades, which happened with the renovation of the subterranean former mine passages by Louis' official architect. 
Then, by royal decree, the tunnels were blessed by the clergy and consecrated. In 1786, cemeteries started emptying and relocating bodies to the underground, and the burial site was officially named the Paris Municipal Ossuary, later adopting the name catacombs in reference to the Roman catacombs that preceded them. The word catacombs comes from the late Latin word catacumbus. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know my... Is that, is that correct, catacombus? I don't know. Like, I didn't take Latin... In no, but it, it's, I love that we both laughed because it's just a funny word. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the name of a subterranean cemetery near Rome, you just pointed out the Roman connection, mm-hmm. Jess, and that's, that's where it, catacombs is. <laughs> catacombs. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I just want to use that in my daily, every day. And I, yeah, I refuse to Google it. I'm putting my foot down here. It's catacombus. Catacombus. Yeah. Um, what are you doing with your catacombus? Out? I'm going to use that as a word if I can't think of another word. I'm just being like, ah, you know, that, that, that uh, catacombus over there. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yes, your catacombus is showing. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, but at first, it was just a matter of getting the remains out of the overflowing cemeteries and literally anywhere else. By night, black cloth covered wagons would make their way from Paris's cemeteries into the catacombs to deposit the dead. That must have been such a cool procession to see. And if you didn't I thought know the what thing. they were doing. Yes. Oh, yeah, I, I know. Visualized in a movie. <laughs> but yeah, it was a bit of a dig it and dump it operation. <laughs> But then one man, one man with a vision, he stepped forward, the best bone guy in the biz. (laughs) (laughs) His name was Louis-Étienne Héricard de Thury. Héricard de Thury was a mining engineer and just all-around scientifically-minded guy with a family history in horticulture, as it goes. According to the American Historical Association, Héricard de Thury, at least says it better, uh, suggested (laughs) that... suggested that the bones be decorated due to the intimate rapport that, in his opinion, would form between the catacombs and the French Revolution. Basically, he believed that the catacombs would be the ultimate burial site for those who lost their lives in battle. He really romanticized that Mm -hmm. a lot, which I guess feels to me classically a French thing to do, that you would apply, you know, what we're looking at is a very gruesome thing of like these bones being taken and dumped into these catacombs. He's, it's poetic to him. Yeah, for sure. And even though we know now that there is little connection between the two at all, sorry, uh, Louis (laughs) Etienne, the only significant burial connected to the revolution is those killed in the September massacres, which was about 1,200 people. And it's a tragic number, but you can't really attribute the entire catacombs to the French Revolution, given the millions of bodies housed there and the times and places they came from. Mm-hmm. By 1809, Mr. Hercard de Thury had finished his project and the catacombs opened to the public by appointment only. And by his project, we don't just mean tidying up the bones into neat stacks for public viewing. We're talking ornate, expertly designed bone arrangements and displays. Oh yeah, it was all a little extra. And these, there are bones that make up archways and perfectly lined walls. Yeah, eerily symmetrical. And if I didn't know any better, I'd say they line up tibia to tibia. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> But yes, I would agree. And it's this kind of attention to detail and morbid artistry that makes the catacombs just stand out. And you will find several notable sculptures throughout, including one known as the barrel, which 
Honestly, it's exactly as the name sounds. Just imagine a big wooden barrel, but instead of wood, it's skulls and bones. (laughs) (laughs) But really big. Yeah. Um, This is what sits in the catacombs from floor to ceiling, almost acting as a support beam. And it's located in the Crypt of the Passion, also appropriately named the Tibia Rotunda. (laughs) Nonetheless, I bet the bone barrel would make a great punch bowl at a Halloween party. That's what I'm saying. Like, if I was in Paris at this time and there were bones flying everywhere, I'd be like, hold up, free bones. (laughs) Okay. Do are we really that upset? Because what I'm seeing is a is a bone surplus here, Jessica. You're killing you're killing me, Elise. It would be all the rib cage. I mean rage. (laughs) What are these? Anyway. They're fantastic, is what it is. (laughs) Over the course of the next 12 years, Paris moved six to seven million bodies during the dead of night, pun very much intended. And then they did the next logical thing, and they opened it up as a tourist attraction. Yeah, and it's still one of the most popular tourist attractions in Paris to this day. Which I am so just so upset with myself because I have been to Paris and did not have a chance to go to the catacombs. It was on the list, but just couldn't make it work. But for international travelers from all walks of life, they label the catacombs a must-see, possibly like most popular among another group of people known as the cataphiles. And these are the true enthusiasts and obsessives. Cataphiles uh, know all the back routes and off-limits areas of the catacombs. However, there are many urban legends about these dark tourists venturing into forbidden areas and never returning. Yeah, it's like there's this whole genre now of dark tourism, Mm -hmm. uh, of people going and visiting cursed or uh, you know, storied landmarks and stuff. Yeah. And I think it's really fascinating. Something that you and I should do together, Jess. I would love to go to the catacombs with you and look (laughs) at the surplus of bones. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe pocket a few. (laughs) Um, No, no, you you don't do that though. We'll talk about that more. But yeah, yeah, there is this level of risk and mystery that I think makes it even more appealing to some of these people that have these uh, fetishes. And which is to say there's a, a small, robust underground, literally, underground group of folks who use the catacombs as kind of their personal hangout spot and playground. This would be your spot. This, If you yeah. lived in Paris, this would definitely be Elisa's hangout spot. Um, you get so tired of having to meet me down there. <laughs> I'd be like, all right, bones again. Um, but no, yeah, like in uh, 2004, police officers found an entrance to the catacombs labeled no public entry, although it was not an official sign by any means. Uh, but the police went in to investigate and overheard howling and barking. They eventually discovered that these sounds were not actual dogs, but they were coming from a burned CD playing <laughs> on a stereo. <laughs> the audacity of putting up a no public entry sign. <laughs> Which wasn't uh, even al- official. I'm sure it was like yeah. maybe like written in a Sharpie. Oh, they, yeah. And and then the police also found a quaint little lounge area, a bar, makeshift bar, a dining nook, and a screening area with seats carved from stone. <laughs> so all in all, it would accommodate maybe 20 people. And it was powered by pirated siphoned electricity. So interesting. Yeah, they they then found what they believed to be a bomb, so they evacuated the tunnels and called in the bomb squad. Now, the bomb in question, because you might be wondering, this sounds serious, it was actually just a metal container with a bunch of wires that happened to be a couscous maker. <laughs> you know? Ain't that always the way? 
Yep. After a few days later, the police returned to the scene, but it was too late. Everything was gone. The culture of the cataphiles is very nomadic and secretive given the illegal nature of their activities. And they do push the limits. Artists have held pop-up galleries in the catacombs and consider it a renegade act of credibility and prestige since only the elite few are able to see it in the restricted areas. There was a rogue group of cataphiles in the 1980s known as the Rats who left a bunch of artwork and murals graffitied down there. Mm -hmm. There's even a portrait memorializing one of the most famous cataphiles, a woman named Foxy who died of cancer. An opposite Foxy's portrait is a mural of skeletons drinking absinthe and playing cards at Foxy's bar. Mm. It's kind of sweet. Yeah. And while there are many cataphiles who do this stuff, you know, for fun, it's it's no easy feat. Raiding the off-limits areas of the catacombs is very dangerous, as many of the tunnels are inaccessible due to flooding or structural issues. According to Reddit, there are many rules and warnings that cataphiles use in order to survive exploring these off-limits tunnels. First, always have a spare light. Loss of light will leave you stranded like Philibert, with the tunnels being so windy and unmarked as they are. If you lose light completely, you are very much unlikely to return. Next, always carry multiple copies of a map and ensure that at least one of these maps is waterproof. Be wary of deep water and small spaces. Part of what makes the catacomb so dangerous is that if you get injured, there's practically no way to, to get you help or get emergency responders to you. Yeah, and I didn't really even know that there were you know, collections of water down there. But it makes sense, yeah. Finally, if you're partying in the catacombs, think like Philibert, consume your substances in moderation. Exploring the catacombs requires a level of alertness that is lost when you're heavily intoxicated. Now you might be wondering, if these areas are off limits, how the heck are people breaking into, circumventing restrictions, and getting to them? But we will answer that after a word from our sponsors. Jess, during the summer, I like to hop on my bike, go for a jaunt, and sometimes even drive to the movie theater for a late night flick. How fun! Uh huh. But I struggle to get my way back. You know, I'm sleepy, I'm relaxed from the movie, and I'm pedaling for my life. But not anymore because there's finally an e bike for me and for you. Yes, the electric e bike's mission is simple make e bikes accessible for everyone. And electric e-bikes start at $7.99, and it's easy to see why they are the fastest-growing e-bike company in the U.S. They're affordable, customizable, ship-free, fully assembled. They're so comfortable even for people who don't normally ride bikes. So leave the car at home, save on gas, and save the planet when you explore and commute on electric e-bikes. Explore your city or town with more ease going somewhere you would have never taken a bike while keeping the air clean as they are eco-friendly. I have one and it is fantastic. It has a lot of pep and get up and go to it. It moves like this thing moves. It stores so easily, which I love because space here in LA is at a premium and I can take it on the beach and not, you know, ride, ride the beach bike path and not worry about the sand. Um, I can do these more ambitious bike trips uh, along the coast here. It's so cool, Jessica. And like, even when I fold it up, it doesn't feel flimsy. It feels like stirrable to store and to ride. Yes. The battery is hidden away and there's an LCD display featuring speed, range, adjustable power level, and it comes pre-charged so you can get moving immediately. Which I did. And there are different models to Jess of bikes and different bike models and accessories provide optimal comfort, storage, and safety. Where will your e-bike adventure take you? 
Go to electricebike.com and get $100 off any e-bike purchase. That's L-E-C-T-R-I-C ebikes.com. So after a long day, and especially after a day of recording 30 Morbid Minutes, I like to take a gummy, get a little high, and decompress while watching one of my favorite shows. Huh. It helps you relax, Jess. I can't lie. <laughs> but there's nothing worse than being baked out of your mind when you don't plan on it. And you know once you eat it, there's no going back. You just kind of sit there suffering, paranoid, stone out of your mind. I know. I don't want to go to outer space. I just want to fly like 30,000 feet in the air where airplanes go. That's a bad joke. Anyway, that's why the perfect medium high, we hit up Diet Smoke for their delicious Delta 8 THC gummies. What is Delta 8? Well, it's simply a slightly less potent THC. And the THC you're probably familiar with is Delta 9, and they're both natural to the cannabis plant, but Diet Smoke extracts their Delta 8 from hemp. Some may call this a loophole. I call it the secret recipe to getting a smooth, stable, and most importantly, legal high. Diet Smoke is legal in most states and non-prescription. So just check out Diet Smoke's website to see if they ship their delicious gummies to your state. Diet smoke does actually get you high, yes, and it is best described as somewhere between the chillness of CBD and that classic stoned feeling that you get with regular weed. Diet smoke isn't light, it is just right. Plus, diet smoke comes in two delicious flavors, blue raspberry and watermelon. I like watermelon, but I say try them both. Absolutely, both are delicious. And each gummy is infused with 10 milligrams of Delta 8 THC derived from American-grown hemp. Also, Diet Smoke's Delta 8 gummies are low in sugar, fat-free, and trust me, very delicious. Did we mention they're legal? So when CBD isn't enough and traditional THC is too much, enjoy the smooth buzz of Diet Smoke. Use promo code 30MM for 20% off your order. That's 30MM. You heard her? Go to dietsmoke.com and use the promo code 30MM for 20% off your order. Again, that's dietsmoke.com, promo code 30MM for 20% off. Okay, so back to the show. So Elise, how the heck are people breaking into, again, circumventing restrictions and getting to them? Well, people know the main entrances, like obviously for tourism, those are amplified, but there are many hidden entrances where you'd least expect them. Some are located in subway tunnels or hospital basements or bar cellars. Remember, these were once all mining tunnels used just to access them across the city. We should go on a scavenger hunt and like find all <gasps> these and just, yeah. Oh my God, that'd be so much fun. Okay. In a rare instance, thieves even drilled a hole into the catacombs to break into a Paris restaurant's wine cellar and stole approximately $675,000 worth of wine. Ugh, it's just the perfect crime. <laughs> <laughs> so perfect. Yeah. Hopefully they didn't get in there and get lost though. I yeah. mean, maybe, I mean, I guess maybe that would have been ideal since they were thieves, but. Yeah, true. Yeah. yeah. There, of course, have been reactionary efforts from the authorities to catch, suppress, and prevent these cataphiles from illegally entering and using the catacombs. And believe it or not, a police brigade formed in 1980 in an effort to catch and fine rogue catacomb explorers. They called themselves, get ready, the catacops. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The catacops patrol the illegal areas, dispensing fines in an attempt to discourage cataphiles from making their way through the tunnels. Jean-Claude Sarrette? You say it, Elise. I would say Jean-Claude Sarrette. 
Love it. Is probably the most well-known catacop. He headed up the catacop squad for 20 years and was actually liked by the cataphiles, despite handing out tickets to many of them. Yeah, they loved him in so much that after his departure, they erected a tile plaque commemorating him in the catacombs, which I guess he wouldn't have liked, but it's kind of sweet. I would hope like he's kind of against everything he was. Yeah, you know, doing, I would hope but, he okay. feel I, yeah. like a little flattered. Um, but just you know how being a cataphile is no easy task. Finding a cataphile that will train you for the tunnels is is also no easy task. Many cataphiles are weary of playing tour guide because of the dangers and risks that exist with the increasing fines and police presence. If you'd like to become a cataphile yourself, the quickest way is to find and build trust with an existing cataphile. Make sure to brush up on your French while you're at it, though. Mm-hmm. Like me, yeah. I need to. Yeah. <laughs> I always do too. But uh, there are about 200 miles total of tunnels, and of these, 170 tunnels are closed to the general public. And this is where you will find the art and movies and hidden gems. And if you're entering by the old stone quarry, you'll find a French phrase carved in stone above the doorway. It reads, Arrêtez, c'est ici l'empire de la mort, which translates to stop, this is the empire of the dead. It's, it's, you know, Jess, all I can think of is Lord of the Rings, speak friend and enter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or uh, the way is shut. Yes. Anyway, anyway, sorry, my brain's always thinking in Lord of the Rings. I mean, as it should. This is one of the many arresting and macabre pieces of text carved into the sepulcher walls. Other phrases include, but are not limited to, wherever you go, death follows as a body's shadow. And numbers here mean nothing. The crowd is lonely. And where there aren't quotes, there are sculptures, these ornate, intricate sculptures that are carved into the walls by a quarry worker named Decure who fought in the army of King Louis XV and was imprisoned during the Seven Years' War. After returning from war between the years 1777 and 1782, Decure would, in secret, come to these areas of the quarries to make his carvings after work and during his breaks. One of the sculptures depicts the place where he was imprisoned, Port Mahon. It almost looks like a little fortress. Mm. Sadly, Decure, though, would fall victim to his own art as he passed during a cave-in while he was carving a staircase to his artwork. There have been periods in history since the catacombs' inception where it served purposes other than entombment, though. During World War II, the French Resistance would host secret meetings in the tunnels, and conversely, it was also used by the Nazis as bunkers for their soldiers. And while it sounds unusual, given its subterranean nature, the catacombs have also been used for farming, specifically mushrooms. In the 19th century, a man named Monsieur Chambéry ventured down the catacombs and noticed a thriving patch of mushrooms. He then took it upon himself to try and grow his own patch. Yeah, I bet those mushrooms loved the dark and the damp. <laughs> and uh, he was successful. And ultimately, the, the Horticultural Society of Paris took notice and gave their blessing. Some say that if you look in the right places, you can still find farmers growing those shrooms in the catacombs. And again, like, yeah, the darkness, the humidity, it's all a mushroom's paradise. Today, around half a million people visit the catacombs every year to see the history, the spectacle, the macabre, and the resting places of notable figures like Jean-Paul Marais, the revolution-era French physician, or Maximilien de Robespierre, the architect of the revolution's reign of terror. He was not a nice guy. Mm. (laughs) Only 200 people are actually allowed in the Paris catacombs at a time. And if you'd like to visit, presumably in the legal way, you can purchase a ticket online from the catacombs website and join a guided tour. 
And no, even though movies like the 2014 horror movie As Above, So Below suggest that there are secret, dark, demonic presences lurking <laughs> beneath the tunnels, the scariest thing you're probably going to encounter is like a musky odor. <laughs> yeah, and about uh, six to seven million corpses. <laughs> oh, yeah, that old chestnut. <laughs> and by the way, that cemetery that we mentioned earlier, Cemetery des Innocents or the Holy Innocent Cemetery, where millions of bodies were exhumed and relocated from, it's now a lovely little city square oh. with like shops and bistros and there's a fountain. Oh, how pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> if you visited the catacombs, drop us a line and tell us about your experience. We would love to hear about it. Yeah. On social media, you know, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, at 30 Morbid Minutes, at Jessica Vasami, at Elise Willems. Yeah. I want to know, like, did you did you go off the beaten path? Did you stick to the route? What what was it like? What did you see? And also me, I mean, we, we need to go to Paris and, and do this. We should make a little video. We, we got to do what dark tourism we can, Jess. Yeah. We really should. Rooster teeth, take us. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of a rooster teeth, you should check out our cute merch in the rooster teeth store. Uh, and we have two shirts in there and we have a decal as well. Yeah, store.roosterteeth.com. And this is our final episode of season two. Uh, thank you so much to all of you sickos, you absolute freaks who <laughs> give us your time, your love, your ears, metaphorical ears. Do not send us actual <laughs> cut off ears. I know that would be very much in the vein of this show. It would. But <laughs> just metaphorically, this show, it takes like work and time to make and love and so for season three, we're just going to take off three solid weeks to prepare and write those new episodes and research and prep, which doesn't mean that we we want you to stop listening. Like if you're new to the podcast, go back and check out some of our older episodes from seasons one and two. There are some great ones. Like, What are some of your favorites, Jess, that you think everybody should go listen to? Oh, man. Um, I loved Sleep Paralysis. I loved uh, Death Row Meals. Like that one was so fascinating. Yeah. Um God, there's been so many. I loved yeah. Death at Disney because I just have, you know, I've never been to Disney. So learning about all that was just a real fun one. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. What about you? Well, this season, I really enjoyed like being prematurely buried alive. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed cloning more than I thought that I would. Yes. And uh, I also really loved um, from our first season, like Death on Cruise Ships to me is one of our best. That was great. And, near-death experiences was very eye-opening, mm -hmm. very fun. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's there's a lot there's that you can go back and listen to. We will be back, though, with new episodes September 6th. Ah, but for now, we love you all. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and again, we will be back with more Morbid Minutes starting September 6th. September 6th. So, so enjoy your next three weeks and we will hear you. You will hear us then. I guess I was going to say see you, but we won't. We won't. We won't. Bye. Bye-bye.